Hello, and welcome to the Slate Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. If you are listening to this, that means you're a Slate Plus member. Thank you so much for supporting Slate and the work that we do. Today, we are going to talk about the Hamilton backlash and backlashes generally when things get <laughs> popular and then people stop liking them or at least stop liking the fact that they like them. Uh, so, like, I love the, that was great. I, I love the weirdly peppy. <laughs> intro that was great um, thanks steve um i try and keep it peppy for the plus members i'm saving up all that pep you only get the pep uh the pep is the premium when you sign up for sleep plus um all right so the occasion for this is twofold number one hamilton the musical discussed on this show and several others and also everywhere in the world that culture rowdy like to talk to one another won an unprecedented number of Tony nominations last week, uh, 16, I think more than any other piece of theater has ever earned. Uh, and it will no doubt win a whole ton of them once the Tonys actually transpire. Also, there has been a thread, a percolating thread of Hamilton criticism that has emerged first in the academic internet. Then there was a piece on Slate interviewing a historian about her critiques of Hamilton the Musical. And then finally, a smart piece by Jenny Schusler in the New York Times about this thread of critique of the play. What do you guys make of these critiques? Uh, Steve, you have seen the show. Laura, you have listened to it but not seen it. Um, but you are both uh, smart readers of criticism. What do you make of these critiques? Do they feel like haters – uh, sipping haterade, or do they feel like interesting, no, and valuable people, contributions? They, well, most of them have said that they really love the show. It's just that when something becomes sort of a juggernaut like this, it does eventually start to replace in people's minds what they know, or maybe they don't know anything about what actually happened, and it becomes the version that they believe in. And so, if you're a historian, you can understand why they might want to say, "Oh, great show," but actually, it didn't happen this way. It doesn't seem like a haterish thing to do. What do you think, Steve? I mean, I have to say, I think they're more or less humbug um, for a couple different reasons. One is that the founding animus for the show is between is the contrast between you know our founder worship of these bewigged old white men in our imagination and and hip hop which revitalizes them and brings them to life that's the that's the intended contrast is 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 meant to be a kind of great man you know it's playing off of our received great man version of the founding of the country um uh you know and and contrasting that with the musical style of hip hop and the and the multi you know uh racial casting but secondly i mean you know i mean this the, the book the musical is derived from the book by ron chernow ron chernow is a very good popular historian i mean maybe one of the best going um i uh he's defended the show he's acted as a, an advisor to the show um i i you know i i absolutely take laura's point, which is that to the extent that this becomes the only familiarity with these events, um, it probably needs a kind of corrective. But um, but the truth is, it's also an, a, a magnificent gateway drug to caring about these events. Witness my 13-year-old daughter who's reading the Chernow book and can't wait to get her hands on all kinds of documents about what happened. My only tiny quibble with the show at all was that... Um, I had just finished reading a bunch of books on the legacy of Jefferson, who's this enormously complicated figure who is reduced a little bit to a foil to Hamilton. And so I suppose to the extent that one grabs upon these events at one particular angle, um, 
you know, you're going to walk away somewhat disappointed by that one little piece of it. But the whole thing, you know, the whole thing is so magnificent that this backlash seems to me very much a tiny, tiny footnote. Is it really a backlash or is it just taking the opportunity to talk about the complexity of the history? Yes, I agree with that. I mean, I think that there, there, the, the two things are going on, and they're not the overlap between them is not all that large. There are some people who are just kind of enraged by the you know amount of coverage, sheer amount of coverage that the production is getting from the mainstream media. Um, you know, Tim Noah, the beloved Tim Noah, ex of Slate, can't go five minutes without tweeting about how obnoxious the. New York Times has been about overcovering it, and I, Laura, I take that point that it, that is separate from people who are just saying, "Oh, by the way, you know, as someone who's a historian of this period, this is a this is only one way of looking at the events." Yeah, I mean, I guess there are two other bits of backlash that I forgot to include in my backlashometer. So there's the backlash of how absurd it is that like literati are obsessed with the show and the kind of total New York Times piece count on Hamilton is absurd. I mean, it's, it is also absurd how often Tim Noah tweets about it, but it is hilarious how much coverage the show has gotten, uh, although Slate certainly contributed as well. And then there was a fourth piece of minor backlash, which is that they posted a casting notice for touring versions of the show, and they specifically posted a notice looking for non-white actors, which then a few people held up as like discrimination against white actors, which, ugh, eye roll. So there is this sort of fr- frictive desire to like have something to say that's negative about Hamilton. But I would challenge, Steve, your notion that the play is particularly reductive about Jefferson and less reductive about Hamilton and Burr. I think, frankly, it's quite reductive about all three of them and it's romantic about Hamilton and, you know, kind of reduces Burr and it it reduces Hamilton to the most romantic stereotype of himself. And fundamentally, this is a fifth critique, fundamentally a conservative stereotype, right? Like he's a bootstrapping guy who through sheer force of intellect and will was able to rise from the bottom uh, to the top by his own volition, which is something that particularly liberal historians resist as a narrative because it's a narrative that tends to undercount how like social and class structures actually help determine where you end up and why and how. And there is something worth considering, I think, about the way in which the musical basically puts forward a pretty classic Horatio Alger, turns Hamilton's life into a Horatio Alger story and posits him as this like unsung hero of the revolution and then uses the language of hip-hop and this excitingly multiracial cast and this unorthodox approach to staging a Broadway musical along with just the sheer force and excellence of the lyrics and the music to make that whole thing feel revolutionary. And you can interpret that, I think, as a radical act or a conservative act, right? The, the radical interpretation is let's not get too caught up. I mean, I found sort of preposterous these suggestions that like, why do why didn't why wasn't there a part for Hercules's black spy slave Cato in the musical? And it's like the musical is telling one story. That also sounds like a great musical. I can't wait for the musical about – but it, it would actually complicate the force of recasting all of these white men as men of color – to then introduce a man of color, where you can, then you can have a white man play hit. Like it, 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 it's <laughs> right. just like technically con- like that. It's true that that story existed. I didn't know about it. I'm glad to know about it. But the the radical the radical interpretation is for all of these men's flaws and all of their limitations and all of the terrible mistakes they made in the founding of this country. Their the things that they ostensibly fought for, the principles they fought for, 
even if they fail to live these principles out in their time or in their even their century, uh, are the same principles that create a country where you can have people of color reinterpreting and owning and feeling like the founding story of the country. The simplistic one, the storybook one, not the one that problematizes issues of class and gender, but the the kind of old rallying cry of you know brave men throwing off the shackles of monarchy An and, opportunity, and yeah. creating yeah. a country for themselves, yeah. that, that, that that is a story that can be everybody's story now. And that even if those men were flawed and limited and their time was flawed, the intellectual heft of what they did is the through line to the better world we live in today. So that's the radical interpretation. The conservative interpretation is uh, this show – makes a lot of rich white people who can afford to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars to see it feel great about the very problematic origins of this country, the false notion that poor people can strive and succeed here most of the time, uh, and makes them feel like they are racially open-minded and inclusive as they endorse this very Mm old-fashioned story and they sit there in the theater. And I think, you know, you can have a legitimate debate about which of those factors is at play in the wild um, success. I mean, juggernaut is the perfect word for it, Laura, of the show. And that's like a fair debate to have. I, I have that debate with myself about it. There's also the way that this is just the inevitable result of a cultural juggernaut. I mean, it happens, for example, with books. It happened with The Goldfinch, which sold a bajillion copies and won the Pulitzer Prize. And as a result of the acclaim and the success and how many people like it, you have a cultural work which may be – and this is true of books and and theater as well – not that many people would have been exposed to if if, if it weren't if it hadn't become this sort of phenomenon that everyone then feels like they have to see it or read it or listen to it or whatever to have an opinion. And so as a result, people who maybe don't have an affinity for the work go to see it or read it or listen to it and and they don't like it. And so then that becomes – I mean this doesn't really seem to be the case with Hamilton. But maybe if you pay that much money for a theater ticket, mm-hmm. you feel like you have to like it. Right. But, um, but but what I'm saying is that is that you know the the big things always have a, have a backlash because they just attract a wider variety of audience and that is necessarily going to include – more likely to include the kind of people who are just not going to take to it and are going to consider it just a disgrace that people are talking about it so much and mm-hmm. it's just the emperor has no clothes. Right. Whereas if it's like some small book or movie or, or, or play that – you know, that it's only going to attract people who are like, oh, you know, I know I'm going to like that existentialist whatever or this – Or know, it's uh, – family. It was fucked up that. in a good way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if that thing becomes a hit and everybody sees it, there's a subset of people who are just like, that was fucked up. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this Backlash to the Backlash segment of the Slat Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest – is now concluding. Uh, thank you once again for being Slate Plus members, for supporting Slate and the journalism we do, and for listening to this bonus segment on backlashes and the Hamilton backlash specifically. We'll talk to you next week.